You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey there, welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast that goes beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm Trister Neuer Jaeger, your host for this episode. I'm also Chief Strategy Officer at Rock Paper Scissors, the music innovation PR firm. I am really thrilled today to get to talk to a music innovator who's doing something extremely valuable. Today's guest is Hope Young, CEO and founder of Biomedical Music Solutions. Biomedical Music is a biomedical company harnessing precision audio to provide targeted treatment for specific medical conditions. Hope has been a music therapist for decades and has used that experience to inform her company's approach to technology. Hope, thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to be here, Trista. Thank you for having me. So I always like to start things out just having folks explain what they do. So how do you talk to people you've just met about what you do and what biomedical music does? Well, it's so easy and it's actually exciting because everybody knows how music makes them cry and and the way that we you know feel so drawn together and moved by music. And everybody knows that music makes them move. Everybody wants to dance. So that's the easy end. Uh, that it's so accessible and it's everywhere. And every human is a musical being and we always have been. So when I talk about biomedical music, um, it's it's bringing up the fact that that wonderful response in the limbic system, that part that makes you go wee or sad or, you know, that it's just awe, right? You're speechless and it communicates so much. The limbic system is, you know, and other activated areas of the brain that music does. It's this, it's this global phenomena in the brain, and um, it activates all areas of the brain simultaneously, which is really exciting, right? Yeah. But when it comes to treatment and from a clinical perspective, that's incredibly sloppy. <laughs> we live now in a precision medicine world. When you go in and you get that devastating diagnosis or somebody in love gets a devastating diagnosis like cancer. Now we just don't go in and try to kill everything in your body and hope you survive. Right. Uh, and just blast you with radiation everywhere. We do it precisely onto the areas and even now target the cancer cells and try to leave the good cells. So when you get to audio design, and engineering for the medical sector, those are the requirements of your audio design, engineering, and that kind of clinical expertise and insight into the design, into my patent that I built. So talking about what we're doing uh, with biomedical music is that precision capability to only activate the area of the brain that you want to activate, maybe increase the volume of activation in that area, so as it's the right dosage, right volume of activation without overactivating, like overstimulating, like when you go, ah, <laughs> <A spot of laughs> response, like, oh my God, right? You don't ever want that to happen to an unconscious person yeah. in ICU that you're trying to keep their heart rate down mm-hmm. or in our product, uh, Sound Steps, that is designed for movement and people with movement disorders to literally cause them to fall or have an adverse reaction. Yeah, amazing. So let's talk for a second about SoundSteps, which is your main product at this moment. Um, SoundSteps addresses movement disorders. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, the challenges that patients experience when they have one of these disorders and how can audio support them as they try to mitigate those challenges? Yeah, it's 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 an amazing and wondrous uh uh, advance that we've made with movement disorders. So anybody with movement disorders, um, they have either like a neurologic condition or a disease uh, on the brain, such as Parkinson's disease or, or MS, or they've had an injury to the brain, such as a stroke, like a bleed on the brain, or a traumatic injury to the brain. Um, that's our target audience with the movement disorders. So when those injuries, disease processes, or conditions occur, it really affects their mobility. That means anytime you try to, your brain tries to tell a muscle to move, it either doesn't move when you want to just get stand up and go to the bathroom or stand up and get out of a building that's on fire. 
Um, so that's called an infecting mobility of loss of mobility, which leaves people incredibly vulnerable. And some of the things that are happening that are preventing that movement that the rest of us get just stand up and, and walk out the door. We have really good balance and gait to get us there. They don't. They oftentimes don't have the, the body reading where your balance is and they feel dizzy. They often try to move. And when the brain sends a signal, it makes the muscle like lily contrast into a painful cramp or twisting motion. It can make the feet want to just like stutter step, right? Like they're stuck to the floor. They just stutter. Many of you have probably seen somebody with the problem of lost mobility that you see them, you know, try to move and instead they fall. And that causes a devastating health decline. And that's one of the leading causes, causes of death for patients 65 and older. So that's one of the reasons I picked our first use case for the audio design. My patent was movement disorders. It is, you know, it's one of the largest and um, most deadly conditions, especially for 65 and older all across mm -hmm. the world, um, causing falls. Mobility is the directly related to causing falls. So from my clinical work, I uh, really loved being able to take what I could do as a music therapist to precisely target that area of the brain that controls walking and balance, do with my music the exact activation that was needed to get that patient's brain to coordinate with the, the motor system and make them walk faster, better, and reduce the fall. So that's what got me excited about making that our first use case. That's really interesting. Is it, I mean, obviously we don't need to go too deep into the specifics of the sounds themselves, but does rhythm help the brain kind of reorient itself and, and start talking, if for lack of a better way to put it, more efficiently to muscles to prevent, to, to encourage better movement? Is it, yeah, is it the rhythm or what? what is it what is like the foundational sonic elements that help people's brains get organized so they can do what they're no longer able to do? Well, I know that you and everybody out there listening knows that, you know, when you go out on a dance floor, what is the key audio thing that needs to be on? Music. And what is one <laughs> of the very first things that you often hear a DJ do? Or do you hear the band click, click before they even start to play, right? So rhythm is our heartbeat. And if your heart goes out of time, Trista, and everybody out there, think about it. If your heart goes out of rhythm, what do you immediately know? You know intrinsically and automatically you're in trouble mm -hmm. with your health. Any uh, ancient Egyptians, uh, all the physicians had to be musicians, realized before electricity, they had to listen to the body. What is one of the fundamental things we listen to? our heart, our breathing, it's all rhythmic. So that's brainstem activity. So absolutely, rhythm is a fundamental to our natural musicality in Envato that is essential for life and good functioning. So rhythm is one of the key components. So when you get and you're, you're considering design from a clinical, from a clinical use case, you have to remember that uh, the rhythm is controlled by, it's called the, the brainstem, uh, the cerebellum, those central parts of the brain, and they control your breathing, respiration, balance, and gait. So those are the first rhythmic components that you would consider in designing audio, especially for gait, balance, and then of course, anything that's cardiac or respiratory related. Amazing. So you know, we don't need to go deep into the protocol, but when someone is using sound steps, they're using it in a clinical environment, right? This isn't an at-home treatment. Well, correct. Right now, and everything, really, since that's been, I have been, uh, I own the Center for Music Therapy for 33 mm -hmm. years. I've been operating a music business in the medical sector now for over three decades. Amazing. So my performance environment has been intensive care, mm -hmm. uh, neonated intensive care, uh, adult psychiatric and, and adolescent psychiatric intensive care, neurological intensive care, outpatient, all these clinical settings. So everything I know about audio, music, and applications is only in that environment. Mm -hmm. So I did go to market there. I started and we are in 175 hospitals 
around the world with my technology currently. Amazing. Now, our next product that we're, our minimally viable product that is coming out this summer literally goes, uh, all the PTs and doctors around the world, and we have like over 3 million users, everybody's asking us, they want to take that audio that they've been using on the Vitex gate training system with mm-hmm. music-assisted therapy, that's the product out on the market, um, and being used in acute, subacute, and outpatient, um, but clinics. Mm-hmm. They work on a treadmill that is an advanced neuro um, uh, plasticity uh, neurostim lab for physical therapists. They all want the audio now to go home mm-hmm. with rehearsal and be able to practice. And we started doing that in the pandemic. It was the perfect um, environment to pilot that with everything yeah. going virtual. So the answer is yes, but guess what? The good news is now we're taking that out where you can go out anywhere, anywhere that you have your phone with you and you can walk anywhere in the community um, and at home, out in your neighborhood, graduations, going on a plane to take you to Paris. I love it. With, you know, Parkinson's. <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, amazing you treatment. You go out and have that same gate mm. capabilities in your iPhone that or is- in your Android That is super cool. So you mentioned your decades of experience working in clinical environments as a music therapist. I'm wondering how developing a tech product is a bit different. um, And I'm curious how you took all of that experience, often working closely one-on-one with someone, and translated it into something like a tech product where you don't have the direct feedback from someone right there in the moment where, I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding how exactly um, music therapy works, but it seems like you had to do a a level of abstraction and look at the technology really closely so that it would still remain effective. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. So one of the things I, I started practicing in the 80s, and even in the 80s, we had sensors on all, you know, in every single patient's room in the hospital, um, sensors that are tracking breathing, respiratory, cardiac. If I was working in PT gyms, they had sensors. I mean, sensors connected to software. Do you know what biofeedback is? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, when you're in the, the hospital room, just think about what hospital rooms have sounded like and looked like for decades. You have sensors attached to the patient with live feeds going directly into software that is sonifying the data and vision and creating a visualization of the data. Most people think of cardiac. They see the sine wave, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the muscle contracting, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and relaxing on the heart. And you hear the audio. And if it goes off its target, right? If that patient leaves the norm, you hear beep, 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 beep. <laughs> or, hey, hey, hey. Yeah. So that's been the technology always around me and audio that I'm either competing with or I'm literally composing with. Oh, amazing. With a patient. So like neonatal intensive care when I was young as a therapist, I literally used that audio to help with the respiration and oxygen saturation with those babies because you have to be so careful with any other audio mm-hmm. in the environment because as soon as I activate the limbic system, those babies can accidentally go from a low oxygen saturation point where they've been struggling to get that oxygen that's being pumped down their, their pretty into their beautiful little lungs into the brain and, and saturating into the cellular level. And if I do that limbic, if I do what you love about music and what everybody, when I'm first talking to them, they, oh yeah, yeah, my favorite song. And you know, you you rock out to, if you do that too quickly or too much, on a neonatal intensive care uh, premature baby, the oxygen saturation can change so quickly (gasps) that if you're not turning down the oxygen simultaneously as they react to the music that you do, you can cause blindness. Oh my God. Realize when I talk about, when you're asking about tech, there is no being in a medical environment as a music therapist, not a musician, mm-hmm. not a musician is there to help and heal and do all the powerful spiritual transformative mm-hmm. things that music can do. But those musicians aren't liable, responsible for mm-hmm. accidentally making a baby blind. Oh <laughs> right? I'm a music That's therapist. I agree in that. We have license. Yeah. We have liability. We're regulated. Mm-hmm. So we have to know that. So 
those were, if you ask me, those scary, stressful, intense things that make a lot of music therapists run and not want to stay mm-hmm. in acute care. And they, a lot of them leave. A lot of music therapists leave. I didn't. I learned about the technology. Hmm. I asked a lot of questions. I thought very hard on what would it take to create a methodology. And I've worked for decades on how to break the music industry and, and way of designing so it could integrate with where that natural audio feed, where that environment, which it's the only environment that biomedical music exists in, mm-hmm. that it has to have those sensors attached in a live feed in real time monitoring with audio and visual and software that knows the metrics on wherever the target is. If it's respiratory, if it's gait and balance, the music is in continuous feedback in that system, monitoring, correcting, and able to move. So if it's starting to go in an area that it knows that you can cause harm, it literally, you know, will back off and not do that. And, and that's that's the beauty of machine learning and um, as we go into AI. And actually, I, 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 I a little prematurely, but it helped me with the scientific research where, you know, because everything's getting so precise and advanced and using AI. So the newer stuff that's coming out, it's exciting because it's it's already got machine learning involved. It's already starting to use AI as a, as a, a super, you know, like, uh, what do you want to call like, uh, like Marvel Comics, like a superhero of data, of being able to sort through the data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, AI's, you know, superpower is finding patterns or reproducing patterns. And so I could see that would be amazing if what you're trying to do is in pattern a mind or a body that is struggling to Correct. be patterned, right? So great. Well, we'll we're going to talk about AI more in just a second, but we're going to have a little break first. We'll be right back. Hey, Dimitri here. I want to give you a quick update on what we're planning for the 2023 Music Tectonics Conference, October 24th, 25th, and 26th in Santa Monica, California. Meng Ru Kwok, CEO of BandLab, will kick off the conference with a keynote. He's got a unique global perspective on how the convergence of music creator tools with the music industry is already shaping the future. I can feel my mind expanding whenever I hear him speak, and I'm so excited to have him set the tone at Music Tectonics this year. The speaker roster keeps growing at musictectonics.com. We're gathering music tech investors from firms like Sony Ventures, Plus 8 Equity Partners, and Waverly Capital, and big thinkers from Spotify, Tidal, Splice, Lander, Billboard, and more. Hey, you're listening to this podcast. Don't you think you should be there too? Get your early bird ticket at musictectonics.com. See you in Santa Monica. We're back. So as how how exactly do you translate some of the scientific research that I mean, there's been a really huge body of music therapy research, um, you know, music in the brain. Um, some of, you know, most people know about some of the popular iterations of that, like, you know, Oliver Sacks's work. And there's a bunch of other like your brain on music kind of things. How the, this big body of research that has that looks at a lot of really small things or various things very specific to other contexts that aren't the medical context. How do you translate that into uh, therapeutic practice? What do you what do you try to how do you how do you sort of pose the right questions so you can truly help people? I love that question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, because when you pose the right question, right? It's called a hypothesis. And fundamental to, I built in, realize that's my, when you get a degree in music therapy, you start off right off your freshman year doing research, data collection. And it's all about training you. Uh, you're a highly specialized musician from the medical sector, realize, or psychiatric or whatever area that you go into. But you have to be, uh, do scientific work even in clinical work. So unlike when you go into music school for performance, you're not taught anything about data collection and stimulus response and Pavlov or, you know, any of the, the, the kind of research design methodology, when and how you would use it, how you interpret that. That is literally your degree, your undergraduate master's or PhD. So that's one. So when you're trained to be a musician, a highly skilled and trained musician as a therapist. 
the thing that's fundamental is asking a better question. Then you design experiments to look and see from data. Data is how many times Trista's going to ask me a question in this interview. <laughs> I would simply So many serve. times. <laughs> right? I would literally count how many times did Trista ask me a question in this interview. And then if I wanted to compare to say how many is she comfortable with asking on, on a norm, you would just simply count how many times Trista you know, ask people a question in her interviews. So that's just basic data, right? You ask a question and then you get data, but the data then has to have a certain structure to it to either look at the question I asked, is this sound, this specific sound designed to help support heel strike in a patient struggling with mobility? Heel strike has been able to take one step to the next step. So that question has to be formulated, right? Heel strike and then counted data, something to capture it and count how many times you walk in a minute, your, your heel hits the ground and how um, we would do something that we're gonna ask a question. So we want what? We wanna know if the heel strike is enough, right? If they're walking enough in a minute to say that that's normal and they don't have a problem or that they've got a problem. So when you ask that question and sound steps has to take a quick diagnostic, we already know the norms because of good clinical practice and good physiotherapist asking this question. Normal walking, you're gonna walk anywhere from 90 up to 120 steps per minute. That's called the norm. We know that data because of good science, good questions methodology, ask that question. And we can say out of the millions of people on the planet, if you're walking below 90 steps per minute and you're at 80, if you're at 45, we know that you have a, a mild to a moderate to a severe mobility gait impairment. So we take that data and we attach then audio that's designed and ask the question, can what audio needs to do to improve that, that up, up, Bop, bop, to bop, 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 right? So you set up a research and design and you design a technology using that good methodology to be able to do that in audio design and to deliver audio that can ask those questions with millions of data feeds going through it very precisely to learn how to do the audio better. Does the sound boom, boom work better or does bop, bop? Well, guess what we found out with my tech? We found out that boom, boom, like walking boom, mm -hmm. boom, 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 that kick drum that's in most rock and roll music. Yeah. That's great for you, Trista, and me even, and big, big, bigger people. Uh -huh. But what we found out, there's a demographic you get from the science and within the medical devices used in treatment of mobility that shows the weight, shows the age, shows the height shows the gender, shows the um, all of these things, even a diagnosis. And we found that once you go below like 190, 80 pounds, and you can get down to the kids that are using the equipment mm -hmm. for mobility, and they're 20, 30, 40 pounds, that boom, boom, literally makes them freeze up. The majority huh. of those kids with cerebral palsy do not just take steps. And instead of this kid who's walking 25 steps per minute, at least, you know, taking 25 steps in a, in a given minute, they go to zero or barely any kind of movement. So those are the kind of questions that you want to ask and you want to have a technology with that good methodology built into it that would be able to ask those questions better, more precisely look at the data and the correlates in the data to get these kids, get these adults to their intended outcome where they're all walking, boom, 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 to that sound. Amazing. So I love that you're talking a bit about personalized treatment. And I know, we, you know, you kind of touched on that um, early on that you don't want to just that, you know, sound, audio treatment, just like pharmaceutical treatment or treating cancer. You don't want to just like blast people with stuff and just kind of hope it works. How um, 
how how do you account for some of these? I mean, is it through just experimenting and and learning as you go and gathering the data, and then I mean, how do how do you learn about some of these very I don't want to say completely idiopathic, but very very small 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 sub populations and how they need to hear things in order to be um, properly treated. All science and healthcare is an art, right? All science, though, is an art, and all yeah. art is a science, and we forget that. I love that. it. I love that. We forget that. When I go over to Italy, it, it makes complete sense that the first country that went like gamebusters and using our product was Italy, and the doctors and Amazing. all the hospitals there. The Renaissance, right? Science is an art, art is a science. Michelangelo was doing advanced scientific graphics and inventions while also, you know, creating the greatest works of art known to man. So, you know, we just, we, we, we kind of dumbed ourselves down separating these two. Huh. So you earlier made a beautiful opening about all the body of research out there. Mm-hmm. When I studied to be a music therapist, I didn't just go in and study heel strike. <laughs> that, would, that would get a little old, I think, after like, you know, like, <laughs> you put it in context of a human being. So, mm. you know, you study the body of research and music and music therapy is broad and vast. It, it's the, the whole psyche of a person that's as ancient as 40,000 years ago. We started, you know, composing and, and music for humanity. We've used it spiritually. So you, you've got to put all of the clinical research in context of the human being, the human soul, right? I remember an Italian doctor, the very first thing he said, you know, how do you, how do, you do this scientific product and method you say and still treat the soul? And I said, that's hmm. easy. It's music. You just design the music. You bring forward the most important and the most vulnerable aspects of the patient in an acute setting. So you do it very simply, and very maybe rhythmically and a little bit of other maybe force or dynamic type things and you go very limbic light. But as they get better and better and as a person or when they're not on the treadmill working and walking, they're just sitting comfortably or they're laying in a bed, you can do all the spiritual, all the things that we know from the research that is the mind-body connection, that the things that are harder to measure. but still always a part of the human soul, the whole human experience. So you have to remember that, you know, as we go into this world of more advanced technical capabilities, they're always an only person centered and never take your insights out of being able to handle the mysteries. I love right? that. Science, yeah. we only ask a question because we're wanting those deeper insights, but we're mainly wanting to help, right? That's what's driven me in all the science and all the art and all of my music sounds like music, even though it's actual audio biofeedback that I've used on my musical composition training and uh, acoustic. We took acoustic and music training and even MIDI and other scientific training, along with behavioral science, medical, you know, we do all the healing arts, guided imagery. I, we have all that training and I'm capable of being an artist and a scientist and applying that in the right time for the right patient, for the right target, while also then pulling back and in the next moment, talking to them about their soul and being able to do something so deeply moving and inspiring after we finish that treatment that touches just the awe of loving being a human. And it must be a relief for many people to be able to reactivate that part of themselves that did take for granted taking a step and then another, right? And so you're at this very vulnerable moment with people where they're you know, trying to get something back that they've lost. And there's a lot of feelings about that as, you know, on the emotional level, as well as the spiritual level. So that's, I think so that's, that's really moving. Um, Let me tell you a story about that. Oh, I love case. stories. Dr. <laughs> Sachs is amazing. And he's been a good friend of music therapist for years. Um, my friend Connie Tomino uh, up in New York worked directly with Dr. Sachs. And I remember, I was asked to speak by Connie at one of the neuro institutes, and I was going up uh, front 
to speak and Dr. Sachs was sitting there and I said, Dr. Sachs, hi, what are you, you know, what are you doing sitting here? And he, and I said, aren't you going to come up with the speakers and be one of our speakers? They said, oh, no, no, you guys are so much more advanced and modern, modern, you know, kind of practice. I was like, ah, here's a man that I've read all his books and my stomach lurches and drops because I flex <laughs> peon comparatively to get up there. Yeah. But he made, um, I talked to him later at, at lunch and we were talking about, you know, music therapy at that point in the nineties, we were still caught in this dilemma. Like most music therapists had all of these Parkinson's MS and stroke patients that exactly were feeling exactly how you felt they were in our music therapy sessions because they lost the ability to move mm-hmm. and walk. And so we're doing music therapy to help them deal with the depression and the anxiety But at that conference, I was talking about what I'm talking to you today, about the ability to make the move first. Why not do both? Mm -hmm. Why not activate and, and, and design technologies and methodologies and interventions that could activate the motor cortex so they could move? We knew that could happen, move better and while addressing depression, but get them so they could move. And I think that's been that kind of catch 22 that earlier in my career that now I've been able to answer and and leave as my trying to be a good ancestor and leave for the next generation to pick up and 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 take the next pain point um, and work it out with good science and great art but that's an, an actual story that's a real situation I dealt with in conversations with Dr. Stack uh, and Connie Tamina that we dealt with in the 90s that no longer have to be a dilemma. So I've got a special uh, report from NAM, the big musical instrument mecca that we were at back in April, and we had some great conversations there. I want to bring one more to you now. Well, hi, greetings from NAM 2023. My name's Evan McKenzie. I'm the vice president of marketing and sales for ASI Audio. Uh, we are a subsidiary of Sensophonics. Um, Dr. Michael Santucci's company out of Chicago, but we're based in Cleveland, Chicago, uh, and anywhere we need to be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, tell us about um, about ASI's key product. ASI's key product is called the 3DME in-ear monitor system, and it's an IEM um, that was actually developed about 15 years ago. It was called a 3D then. And that was before there was a thing called apps, which you may have heard of. So it was a very simple body pack that had volume control. It ran on AA batteries, but it was the first in-ear monitor system with uh, active ambient microphones embedded so that no longer when you put an IEM in your ears, you weren't sealed off from the acoustics of the room, the audience, um, your bandmates. So I like to say that fast forward now, 13 years later, Michael uh, reinvented and upgraded it. It now has an app, which you can control your mic levels, your limiter. It has a seven band EQ for left and right. You can save over 50 settings. It has a eight hour battery life. Wow. And you can use it by itself and use it purely in an acoustic fashion. Or you can pair it with your wireless body pack and blend your front of house mix with your monitor mix. Or, if you want, you can use it the way every other IEM in the world works. Put it in your ears and just use it as a feed direct without using the ambient. Um, But once again, you're cut off. And as Michael will tell you, you know, oftentimes you see musicians, singers on stage, and they'll be pulling one of their earplugs out. I see Ed Shearing every time I see him on TV. He's got one laying on his shirt. Um, And as Michael will tell you, as a musician, because he grew up as a musician, he understands that. But as an audiologist, he's very concerned because that can seriously harm not only your hearing, but your ability to process hearing in your brain. So that gave birth to the 3D and now the 3D ME in your monitor system, which gives you complete control. And it brings back, I like to say, the immediacy and intimacy of your bandmates that you have without anything in your ears the audience, the acoustics of the room, it's all back. So you don't have to pull anything out anymore. You're protected and um, it's quite amazing product. So I joined the company. (laughs) To me, I I always think of use cases and I'm a former artist and what I have in my ears right now, you know, there's obvious limitations. The, The first being, 
gone is the communication with your bandmates. Right. And there were times we would put ambient condenser mics either facing towards the stage exactly. to try to hear our own self, or we'd have a separate talkback mic so we could communicate as musical director, right. all the way to having ambient microphones facing the crowd to try to get some room noise. And the thing that I, I dislike most about in-ears is the vibe that the crowd puts back is shut off whenever you have what I have in my ears right now. Yeah, exactly. So to me, that as a performer who likes to feed off the crowd, that was the first, I, I mean, it takes gigs and gigs and gigs just to get used to them and to teach yourself that it's okay. How awesome would it be to, to I want to experience this 3D, that's incredible. Yeah, to be, to be in the control yeah, like that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, like I said, it's it's been 15 years since the original, and there are still A-list artists, it's very funny, um, Michael just told a very funny story. Dave Matthews has been using the original 3D okay. forever. So is Steven Tyler, so is Cindy Lauper. But uh, they all hold on to it like a security blanket because, you know, it's like your Les Paul or your Fender Strat or your Martin right. guitar or your your Selmer horn, whatever keyboard. You know, you know it, you That's love it, you know what one. it's going to do. And it's taken Michael a long time to get some of these A-listers to go, okay, but this one takes it another yeah, level. Yeah, it does all that, and and they're fine, and they're now they're all finally going. Okay, Michael, we trust you. And the guy's been around for forty years doing this. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, I, I always it, it, maybe it's the sales guy in me, but I'm always thinking about the pain point and like what solves that. So that's my favorite question to ask. And, and sorry to kind of answer it for you from my no, it's from my own perspective. You've been feeling it right. That's, that's the point. Yeah, right. I shouldn't, you know. Like I've said since the day I joined the company, when they first demoed it on me, I went, it's the immediacy of the of the room, the audience, your bandmates, and it's that intimacy with your bandmates. You're creating, I don't care if you're playing the same song for the thousandth time, it's still different right. because it's live. And you may think it, and that it's with traditional IEMs, that's lost. Right, and, and and even the guys like me now who are just weekend warriors, right? Like, that's our hang time. That's the only time we get to hang out with our friends. So there's a lot of times we would just make jokes on stage and, and that's gone because you can't yeah. hear each other. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, just little things like that. I'd, yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Has anything unexpected come, in, come out of uh, users uh, playing around with your product? Uh, yeah. Any unforeseen use cases? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my background, I came up in the ad agency world and was working with JBL uh, Pro, not the consumer, um, guitar amps. Um, and then I jumped over to QSC. Um, and, you know, at QSC we did everything, we, we do, they do everything, amplifiers, speakers, foreground, background, install, all of that. So I was exposed to a whole broader range of the MI market than it had ever been. And so when we launched here three years ago, <laughs> And then COVID shut us down for two years, so we're a year old, as I was saying Gosh, earlier. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, my instinct said, I think this might be of interest to this particular market segment, but let me see. So I asked a couple of editors that I've known for years from DJ publications to oh. come by. Um, and we had our own booth there, and we had an immersive area like Sensophonics does. And so they came by, and the guys, um, Jim Tremaine from DJ Times and uh, Ryan Berger from Mobile Beat, two very different market segments. Mobile DJs are doing weddings and corporate events and then D DJ Times is the club and festival folks. I said, come by and try this thing. Something tells me this could replace pushing wet headphone behind your oh, ear yeah, yeah, to hear yeah. the crowd, to hear your whatever. So they came by and they looked at me after trying and went, uh, wait a minute, no more headphones? Right, no more headphones, is that okay? because I never presume to know what right. they want. I just say, you know, I think this might solve something for you. And sure enough, we've had DJs grab this thing, and once they try it, they're like, oh, wow, because they can control it right on their hip, the oh, volume up yeah. and down. They can set it before the show to whatever mix they want. Um, and the other interesting market, we knew House of Worship praise bands would be into it. What we didn't realize is pastors who either just speak and don't um, necessarily perform with the band or do having this in their ears was a was like eye-opening for them like wait a minute you know because 
look, if you don't take care of your ears, by the time you're 30, you're starting degradation. Just by, well, the sound in this room, for example. <laughs> right. But, you know, sustained over 85 dB can damage your ears over a long period of time. Well, that can happen to pastors, let alone DJs, because DJs are always shoving one can behind their ear. Well, again, it's just like pulling an IEM out, a traditional IEM out of your ear. That's going to mess up your hearing. Right, you're losing all the benefits you as are. well as and the uh, protection. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, it, my curiosity gets me. I wonder if you've heard any um, use cases or anything for singers in the studio. Because I mean, even recording in a studio environment, I'd see at, on records I've produced and things, I've seen singers take one ear off so they can hear their actual chest voice and the resonance, like in their skull, actually, right? Right. Like, right. So I, I wonder if that would would be a good use case as well. That'd be One of our earliest adopters, a guy that I was working with when I was with a microphone company, uh, is a singer named Mitch Malloy. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, right. Uh, uh, Van Halen, right? Uh, kind, almost. Um, well, <laughs> he, kind he was. Of, yes, yeah. He was. He's um, incredible. He is a wonderful guy. Hi, Mitch. <laughs> I know you'll hear this because I'll tell you to listen. Oh, man. Well, but I'm this a is one of, the best, so that's awesome. one of the best brand ambassadors I could have found. And he he came by. He um, has just recorded a solo album, and he's used the uh, the 3DME in the studio what to voice. record himself on his acoustic, his electric. He plays everything. I mean, he's this gorgeous. <laughs> yes, yeah. you're a pretty boy. <laughs> Who is? Yes, you're an Uber geek. Because he can he can run a recording session right. from one side of the glass, and then go on the other side and perform. So he's been using them, and then he's turned on other uh, musicians who are now. Using right. them in the studio. Why not? Yeah. So what's bringing you to NAM this year? What are you hoping to solve by uh, attending? Global domination. <laughs> <laughs> and distribution. <laughs> Same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, we, we launched, and two months later, the world shut down. Mm. There was no market for our product. We struggled. We got through. Thankfully, um, you know, Michael found us some very generous venture capital people that understood this once in a century event, and they sustained us. So essentially we're a year old. Um, so two things we're, I'm working on solving. Uh, I mean, I'm, I come, came up from the branding agency world, so, and prior to that, photography and performing arts. So I'm a storyteller. Mm. Um, and so it's awareness and global Domination or distribution, because <laughs> um, we have good distribution. We have a good. We have our own sales force in the U.S. Two great new guys, um, and a couple of our partners, AMS and Full Compass, yeah. really um, stepped up when we were nothing and and said, "This is amazing." I mean, the thing that they both said in different ways was, "You know, you've created a whole new category," and to ah. us, it was like, "Really?" You know, I thought I knew everything. I don't, <laughs> and that new category is that this is really not it's not really an in-ear monitor it's a new performance experience it truly is and I that can sound like marketing speak and I'm trying not to be marketing speak but it is um, but it truly is a new experience for the musician and also front of here's the wild thing front of house engineers and monitor engineers are falling in love with this product why because it saves their ears so once sound check is done and they're in performance, they can use it in sound check, but a lot of them choose to do sound check with their bare ears. That's what they're paid for. But then during performance, because you never know what's going to happen, they, you know, and it's a lot of the A-list um, engineers been coming to us saying, I love using this thing once I've got the show running because now I'm protecting my hearing and I can adjust whatever I want, but I can still clearly hear wow. what I've set up for the band. If, if I'm running front of house with the app, can I switch to listen to someone's monitor? If there, if there, there's, yes. Okay. There's three ways to use the product. As I said, um, you know, you can use it 100% ambient. You use our app and you set up your levels uh, from your mic level to your, your limiter to your with seven band EQ. Um, but you can also take the product and you, and it comes with a little jumper cable and it connects to your wireless body pack. So then you're getting your front of house, or if you're a really wealthy musician, you're the guy or girl off stage who's your monitor person, right. and you can blend the two. Right. Yeah. That's incredible. I love it. Yeah, it's I a lot it. of fun. That's, That's the way a lot of the A-list folks are using course, it. Of course, yeah. Because um, at first they're like, no, I just want to use 
100% front of house, and the front of house person, that's their job, mm -hmm. or the monitor person, that's their job. But eventually they start to say, you know what, bleed me in a little bit, because one of the nightmares that musicians go through um, is when you have microphones pointed at the audience so that they can hear in their ears what the audience is doing. Well, if you've got a couple of really rabid fans right in front of that microphone, or a couple of people have had one too many cocktails before the show, <laughs> or other outside activities, and they're yelling and screaming, and that, that's going right in your ears. So yeah, you can have your guy or girl turn it down, but then you're losing. So that's what this wow. the, the 3DME yeah. does for you. Really cool. Well, what's next? Is there anything you can talk about that's uh, on the horizon? It's interesting. We've had a lot of inquiries from people who um, are audiophiles, mm -hmm. you know, people that have don't mind spending a little bit more and have bought the product, um, yeah, and use it to go to concerts. Oh, right, wow. because um, you know, tinnitus is not, nothing yeah. to mess around with. And for those listening who don't know what that is, that's that ringing in your ears when you lay down at night. Either <laughs> yep, after a show, especially. Yeah, or it never goes away. Ask Pete Townsend um, and a lot of musicians. So. What this pro the other big thing that this product does, and it's been Michael's mission for 40 years, is hearing health for musicians, prolonging your career. Um, you know, one of the classics, we just sold 50 units to the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra because that oh. opera orchestra plays in a pit, you know, right. in a big wood-walled wood room. Right. And there's 60 of them in there. So uh, 50 of them are using the 3DME the other 10 are using a variation that Michael makes called a 2-Max, which is more of a, a traditional type of a plug. It's electronic. But um, it's, it's, it's uh, saving their hearing. Because ever since that landmark lawsuit with the London Opera Orchestra about seven, eight years ago, which made the EU extremely difficult, we, it took us almost a year and a half to get EU approval. Wow. Because that lawsuit, musicians lost their careers at age 50 because they didn't have protection, proper protection. And that's been Michael's mission his entire career, is hearing health for musicians so that when you are 65, 75, you know, I mean, how old was, um, oh, the famous piano player, which is 92 and he was still playing. Why? Because his ears had been protected, one. And two, you know, he didn't have arthritis, but, but that's been the mission and that's what this product does. In addition to all the things that it does, I said earlier, it protects your ears. And so audiophiles are getting turned on to that as well, that they can protect the sense they love. And now they're saying, is is there a way you can make this so that it's, um, we don't have to have the body pack? Oh. Meaning Bluetooth. Because as you know, in this industry. Oh wow, so you're cordless then, even yeah. from the ear. So that the consumer can go to a show and just pull out their phone, open the app, that's where our app lives, um, and adjust the mic levels if they want, or they can, if they want to hear a little more boom boom out of the Rolling Stones, they can do that, you know, or less boom boom out of Jay-Z, they can do that. <laughs> um, so there's um, product roadmap on the horizon for something where we can take it into the consumer space, because again, no one's doing it, and I know that sounds like marketing speak, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, this is the only IEM that does what it does, and if we can take it to Jane and Joe concert goer so that they don't go home with their ears ringing, let alone they can enjoy, you know, going to shows, stadiums or tiny clubs their whole lives and they don't have to wear hearing aids. Yeah, that, that'd be incredible. I, I went to a rock show a month ago and literally by the by the time the opener was through, I was putting napkins in my ears. <laughs> you know, it's it's inexcusable at this yeah. point. I see so many people with earplugs, mm -hmm. which, you know, it, it, it helps to save your hearing, but of course you're, there's no control there. No, I mean, there are, Michael, Sensophonics makes some, so you put them in and they'll take it down minus 10 dB, minus 15, there's one minus 20, and you can still hear fine, but it's just lowering the volume, but you're not, you're, I mean, you're controlling it manually, you're just sticking right, in your ear. Right, right, okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, before we go, could you let us know how listeners can find out more about the 3DME? Yeah, I mean, you can follow us on all the platforms. ASI Audio, it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're not on TikTok yet. Uh, we're on LinkedIn, um, but also our web URL is just asiaudio.com. We sell direct, we sell through dealers. Um, if you want 
One of the things I didn't mention, you can get custom ear tips that fit over our unit. It comes with uh, comply tips. You just go to an audiologist, get impressions taken, send them to Chicago Sensophonics, and they're custom made for you. Wow, awesome. But thanks again. Hey, thank you. All right, thank uh, you. Yeah, thank you. And now back to the show. We're back. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned some of the, the adoption of sound steps in Italy, and I'm curious if you've gotten feedback from Italian clinicians on what works best for uh, that specific cultural milieu. And though Italy is actually you know, a bunch of different cultures, one could argue. Um, I'm curious how, if you've, if you've had a moment or a chance to gather any data about cultural specificity, do you think um, that the, I mean, there's sort of general physiological principles that you're queuing into. Are there some cultural aspects you think need to be addressed with products like this that are important? Absolutely. And, and so again, you're giving a good opportunity to bring up real situations. So when I launched the product there, I was asked and honored to speak and train at five different large, the largest neuro institutes and rehab institutes in Italy and the top doctors, they're amazing. So I, they would bring me in and then they already brought our product in and I train them on the product, but I get, they'd have the whole staff, all the therapists and the doctors there. And I got to speak with them and then, and got a lot of chances to have long conversations and ongoing conversations. So one of the things, one of the main MDs did over there, he said, before I even talked, he said, realize this is not an apples to apples conversation. What um, Miss Young is going to be saying we are definitely apples to oranges in our cultural context of treatment for movement disorders uh, in Italy versus America. So one thing, it's that whole system. If you're in Italy and an Italian, you automatically have two weeks of rehab twice a year of intensive rehab as soon as you're diagnosed with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So that means you're staying like the Gravedona Institute, like on Lake Como, it's gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's paid for. No, it doesn't matter if you've been, you know, living and, you know, with no income or if you are a billionaire, you have two weeks of intensive rehab. And in the room that they use the Bidex gate training, uh, uh, gate training system with music assisted therapy, there's then another, that treadmill in the same room, the patient does 20 minutes there. Then they go to 20 minutes of augmented reality uh, treadmill. And then they have a treadmill in the water. And wow. they do that daily for two weeks. And then they have dance. So I met physiotherapists, PTs. And in that physiotherapy team, they had physiotherapists that were either trained in dance or they had dance therapists trained to be assistants in PT. And those patients dance, they make music, they sing. They don't necessarily have, they don't have music therapists. That's just much more natural. The patients themselves, I was in um, the emergency department. They spontaneously start to sing in the ER together. Wow. It's a very different. Wow. The doctors do not specialize in neurology over there to weigh into the practice. They uh, told me how they feel that dumbs down the doctors that you over-specialize mm-hmm. too soon. So they are not allowed to do that. So they know like what you have, your primary care physician, your integrative care. They do all of that first for many years before they're ever allowed to specialize in neurology. So it's so different when music is such a natural part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And also when you have treatment using advanced technology and art and everybody gets treatment, patients look totally different. So when we look at the research over there and there's a lot now using our product and it's exciting, Mm -hmm. I know I have to take those outcomes in consideration because a patient here, you don't see many Parkinson's patients that get any intensive training, Hmm. you know, twice a year for two weeks. Many don't get any training, any PT, for like 15 years after diagnosis. They may get medication, but they're not going to get it unless they have money. Medicare is only going to pay for maybe one or two weeks of PT, but that's if you've fallen or if you're deteriorated. They start keeping people well. They start keeping people well on diagnosis. Amazing. We make people fall off the cliff or go over the waterfall and crash before we ever get uh, care. 
So that's why we have a more expensive model. That's why the costs are going up. That's why all our revenue models only reinforce sick care here. So yeah. I know that. So I put that, I know that when I'm looking at research in different countries, healthcare systems, and about Italy in particular, every music and art is an art and art is a science. It's just not so delineated and it's used all over the place, whether in the hospital or at home. Amazing. Um, I, I love how just seeing different ways that we could apply um, some of these ideas and technologies hints at some of the fundamental struggles of the U.S. healthcare system. Um, you've chosen a, a really challenging path, Hope, where you know you have the music industry on one hand, where I know you're probably not using a ton of commercial releases, but that could be something potentially that could be really helpful in a music. Uh, a music therapeutic product, and then you have folks like the the FDA, just the the very the mechanics of the U.S. Uh, system, which is built basically around pharmaceuticals, not non pharmaceutical treatments. How have you navigated that? Um, you know what what would allow us to have more to provide more access to music therapies um, or or art therapies or other other therapies that are beyond sort of just the basic like you know, prescriptions that seem to be favored at the moment. Absolutely. And, and you're right, you know, bringing the arts more in, but not having, we gate, we gatekeep so intensively for good reasons, but we haven't allowed kind of like, like a sponge, a little bit more of soft openings and other ways to vet and allow that to more easily flow more naturally, like in Italy. One of the things that I think we need to look at is, is both in, in the arts and science world um, and in the music world, I'll speak to directly since both in the medical and in the music industry, I do a lot in the regulatory and legislative space. And um, when we're talking about the arts, those wholly encompass us from before we're even born, we're hearing and listening and responding to music and sound in the womb. And it's the very last sense that goes offline as you die. So it needs to be accessible always, but with the technology, the, the landscape that I've designed for, you can have music, like you said, like that is just for mass consumption, but you can design like audio and things the way I've done it with the methodology that you get a baseline. Right. So that we're, it's especially if you're in acute and subacute. Once mm -hmm. you let me just say this, let me answer your question this way. <laughs> it's a tough question. So <laughs> help, heal, and treat. Let's just think of that, those three words. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's just think about from the, the far left side to the far right side. Over here, you're helping people through art and music. Right. And you know that you do that every day. Right. And we want that beautiful spiritual brought in no matter where you are right? And whatever point you're going through in life. We know that it heals. And the reason is we know the power of art to heal. And every person is musical. Every person is creative and an artist. So we want to use that with each other and not be restricted. But then we get to treatment and we do have this definitive line that is called the regulatory legislative space that is FDA approval and stuff. And we have that when it comes to treatment and why we design hospitals so sterile, right? Because we didn't know about microbes that would get in your body, infect you. And we were doing amputations and people were dying from, from um, infections, right? Mm -hmm. The science taught us to create a different environment for that treatment that was called sterile. Sterile environment, you can go through something like losing a limb and actually heal from it and, and start to walk again with an adaptive device. So this is why we created that space that you're asking me about. And I designed the, the design and the technology the way I did for that space. So we know that when you are your heart rate um, and you start having a panic attack or anxiety and or your blood pressure is dropping or increasing, that there's audio already there, there's visual already there that we know what your norm is that can be start to play that will actually correct it better than the pharmaceutical and faster, right? That's what my product's whole aims are, that we're non-pharmaceutical audio in the environment that instead is monitoring 
can be turned to treating it. That's where it will be. And from there, as long as you have that system in place and you start to bring in on an unconscious person something from their playlist that you love, like when you play a song from your mom, right? As she's lying there and it's those those situations, none of us want but music can touch and make us feel whole and connected. If that monitor starts to go off, you know that you may be playing a song that's reminding her at that moment of somebody else that died or mm-hmm. painful memories. Yeah. So with biomedical music, instead the biomedical music could come back on, get her regulated. You can then go back to her playlist that knows to be watching for these unintended consequences called autobiographical memory. When a person who is cognitively impaired, can't speak, um, and it can be monitored and correctly brought into situations where one of the biggest things I can tell you outside of like medical things from a psychiatric standpoint, and my mom was bipolar, so I grew up with this knowing acute psychiatric and suicidal thinking is that a lot of times people naturally go to spiritual music in in intense times and that's so natural and healing but one of the things women especially and men have not been able to speak about when they're in acute situations is sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and even it's just the hardest thing to say or speak about so sometimes if it's been somebody in your church, mm-hmm. especially like a priest or a trusted spiritual person that sexually assaulted you, the spirituals, the singing those over and over presence, and you're in an acute psychiatric or an acute or subacute or not even acute situation, and you see a person just overly smiling that has Alzheimer's rocking and showing more anxious, but they're showing that smiling behavior, mm-hmm. you often want to back off the music and try something else. Interesting. Um, because working with women and men for so many years and seeing them on that journey to how to re-find music, to re-find art, to re-find spiritual spaces that are safe, what I call the sacred secular mm-hmm. um, space where you get to ask and rebuild your spirit. Um, because music is always, and you can't unpair it very easily, those autobiographical memories that we treasure, but you don't think about music as a double-edged sword there. Amazing. And wow. Those memories, like my husband is a, a vet, an army mm-hmm. veteran. PTSD is real. The yeah. music is in their back pocket as they drive out. The ID explodes. Two people died. One's face was blown off. The other had a link. And this, this person who survived. You have to be really careful about autobiographical memories. So that's why I designed biomedical music so carefully the way I did so mm-hmm. we could attach it for those transformative memories and those times. But you folks who are more lay people, when you're trying to do the right healing thing mm-hmm. and you're triggering and you don't know it. So that's wow. one reason that it's I'm designing for with that knowledge and somebody who's lived that full spectrum to help us bring wisely that care into better care. That's really floppy. That is, yeah, that is so um, thought provoking because I think people often emphasize, I mean, music is powerful and anything powerful can have uh, amazing benefits and it can also do harm. Right. And I think thinking about the harm side is not is not what what a lot of folks in music like to do, <laughs> but it can do harm. Um, and, and audio can can cause like, like you're saying, cause these deep reactions that are sometimes hard to identify if you're not familiar with people's mind states, um, if they've got a chronic condition. And then there's just the the very fact that, you know, there are audio weapons. So we need to as we're as we're moving towards these non-pharmaceutical treatments, we need to take them seriously as powerful mechanisms um, and not just like, you know, I play the didgeridoo so that, you know, you're, you're in, in, for hospice patients or whatever. I mean, I don't mean to belittle that, but that, well, that tends to be what people keep in mind. That, you know, it's, 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 you're giving me this incredible opportunity to speak about it, right? And mm-hmm. people get it. They just, it's we, the music industry, since I'm a member of the Grammys, yeah. it's decades worth of education in the industry, decades worth of finding partners that would help me break rules, break the rules, mm-hmm. break those rules in audio engineering, break the science, bring in a generation that was ready to break rules, break software, to, to design new technology 
for this space beyond just where free speech reigns. Like yeah. we've got to be really clear in the music industry of keeping free speech, but then designing audio and being prepared for this whole medical sector where we know how to do this. And we can, there's just so many possibilities mm-hmm. with designing and bringing audio and even artists that want to work in that regulated space that it's the same level of play and liability that everybody else is playing in and already audio is there. Um, so that's my, that's my next 25 years. And I, I love it. I want to be a, as a good human, a good ancestor to the next generation. I want to help take the wisdom, um, the knowledge and technology is a good way to do it. And these conversations with you are just so priceless. And I thank you for your wonderful, compelling question. And everybody who's spending time to listen and consider mm-hmm. how to work together, right? And to learn and to grow together, how to do this more wholly together. Thanks so much, Hope. That is a wonderful way to conclude our, our conversation today. And I really appreciate you bringing all of your experience and knowledge to us. And hopefully you will spark some thoughts and have some people working towards solving some of these problems and a better integration of the art and science of music. Thank you, Trista. It's truly been a pleasure and I'm honored. So thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.